It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk here on the Federal News Network. I am Tony Vernetti from Feds Protection and today is Friday, May 3rd, 2019. And we have an exciting show for you today because we'll be talking about security clearances in the federal government for both contractors and federal employees. And this is fresh off the heels of the president's executive order that he signed last week, uh, finally transferring the entire security clearance portfolio for the federal government from the Office of Personnel Management over to DOD. So we really figured this would be a ripe topic for us here at Fed Talk. And to assist with me um, with this discussion, we're delighted to have three distinguished guests in studio. Um, and they're really representing, you know, three different perspectives, I think. You know, we've got to represent what I'm going to call industry. we got the government in here and we got individuals, which really is another word for lawyer. Got a lawyer. <laughs> oh, I think we've got four lawyers in here, so we should have we should have uh, plenty plenty to talk about. First, let me introduce Alan Schwachen from the Professional Services Council, uh, PSC, which is a national trade association representing the interests of the government technology and professional services industry. And Alan is the longtime. Alan, is it okay if I say longtime? Long time experience to be preferred. <laughs> long time vice president and counsel to the professional services council. So, Alan, good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Tony. All right. So, Alan's industry. Um, our next guest is Perry Russell Hunter, who is a director of the Defense Office of Hearings and Appeals, or by its acronym, which we'll be referring to it as today, is DOA. DOA is a DOD component that provides hearings and issues decisions in personal security clearance cases for contractor personnel, DOD employees, and military personnel. Perry will talk about a little bit about their jurisdiction, but for me, you know, sort of being associated with the security clearance you know, world for the better part of 25 years. Doe is really kind of the the mecca or the mothership of where to go to when you're looking for for security clearance uh, guidance. So we're very pleased um, to have Perry here this morning. Good morning, Perry. Thanks for being here. Good morning, and thank you, Tony, for having me. And so Perry is government. And finally, certainly not least, we need to have a security clearance lawyer to round out the show. So I've got my good friend and colleague, Chris Keevan, a partner at Shaw, Branson & Roth, Chris routinely litigates security clearance matters throughout the federal government for both federal employees and contractors. Good morning, Chris. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. It's nice to finally get you on here. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get started, I want to remind everyone that Fed Talk is brought to you by Federal Long-Term Care Partners. Long-Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel Management-sponsored Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. For more information, go to ltcfeds.com. That's ltcfeds.com. So before we sort of jump into the meat of it, I want to give everyone just a little opportunity to introduce your your organizations to our to our listeners. Alan, I'm going to go ahead and start with you. Well, thanks, Tony. As you said at the outset, the Professional Services Council is a national trade association. Uh, we represent over 400 government contractors, all of whom sell technology and professional services to the federal government. Uh, we span the spectrum of uh, agencies that they work with, uh, literally just about every federal agency. Uh, some, our member companies are engaged there. Uh, we span the spectrum of size of companies from small, mid-tier to large companies. Uh, many of our member companies uh, – Either their employees have or uh, government customers require them to have security clearances. So we've been engaged in uh, almost a decade-long uh, conversation, engagement around security clearances uh, with government officials and the executive branch as well as on the Hill. Uh, we've spent some time looking at processing. We've spent some time looking at the timeliness of reviews, whether they be from the uh, investigation side or the adjudication side. 
and even the post-clearance reviews as well. Uh, So it's been a a long struggle. I wish we were making better progress, uh, but there's uh, lots of work to do. And uh, quite honestly, the administration uh, has has been making significant progress in the last couple of years uh, on a a troubling set of issues around the backlog. And uh, we were strong supporters of the president's executive order, had been anticipating that for some time. Uh, We thought that uh, background investigations needs to be a whole-of-government approach, uh, and when, as we worked with Congress of the past two years, as they transferred, uh, wanted to transfer a portion of the portfolio to DOD, uh, we were a strong supporter of the administration's approach to do it all at once. And we're pleased to see the executive order follow through. Now it'll be in the implementation phase. So, uh, right. that's so, a little bit. So, security clearance is obviously something that's very, very important um, to your membership. Um, so, just generally, people that want to get more information um, about PSC. Um, your website's pscouncil.org? No, it's a PS Council, P-S-C-O-U-N-C-I-L.org. Okay, great. And they can We couldn't afford two Cs. <laughs> and I'll, I'll give you another opportunity to get that out um, a, little bit, a little bit later. Um, Perry, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to kind of introduce DOA to our, to our listeners. And, you know, and maybe at the same time, I could have you just sort of give a, a general overview of how you fit into the the security clearance portfolio across the, across the federal government. Okay, so so Doha, the Defense Office of Hearings and Appeals, uh, is the the one place uh, for uh, collateral, meaning secret and top secret security clearances in industry, uh, to be adjudicated. There, the, we are the one place where a security clearance can be denied or revoked, and that's because contractors are are entitled to administrative due process, uh, and have been since 1960. Uh, the reason for that is a Supreme Court decision called Green versus McElroy, in which the Supreme Court uh, said that if you're going to take away a security clearance uh, from a contractor, you need to give them notice and an opportunity to respond and a meaningful hearing that includes cross-examination and confrontation. Uh, that became uh, encapsulated in an executive order. Uh, the, the Supreme Court had said, as, as they often do, it's up to one of the other two branches to do something about this. Uh, President Eisenhower quite wisely said, this is an executive function, I'm going to issue an executive order, and did so six months later in in February of 1960. As a result, um, industry contractors have had this administrative due process um, ever since 1960. Uh, It took a little bit longer for federal civilian employees uh, and military members to catch up. Uh, They started to get that administrative due process formally. Uh, in, in 1995 with Executive Order 12968 and the DOD implementation of that. Uh, but now, uh, as the, 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 these processes become in increasingly similar and more harmonized, uh, the, the, the basic framework is uh, you fill out an application. Uh, it's the standard Form 86, uh, also in its electronic form known as EQIP. Uh, that form asks uh, a number of questions which launch an investigation. The investigation um, until now has been performed uh, from 2005 until now was performed by OPM and later by something called the National Background Investigations Bureau or NBIB. Uh, that is what is now moved to DOD with this uh, executive order signed last week. But uh, when the investigation is done, uh, then uh, an adjudication facility, and for DOD, that's the, uh, uh, the DOD um, uh, CAF, which is, is in Fort Meade and, and consolidated a, a number of other adjudication facilities within the department back in 2012 and 2013, uh, will adjudicate the clearance. And so those are the, 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 the major uh, workload areas. Um, and then when uh, someone is entitled to administrative due process, if the CAF makes a decision that they're going to deny or revoke, then um, it will come to Doha or in some instances for military and civilian members, it will go to a personnel security appeal board. Uh, other departments and agencies have similar parallel processes. So, I mean, I was going to mention something, you know, quickly about you mentioned the word due process. Um, and, you know, at least in my former law practice, maybe Chris a little bit later can, can speak to this. Um, it's been my experience, you know, that that due process afforded both the contractors and federal employees is a meaningful due process, whether it's at DOA, you know, or whether it's being adjudicated by, you know, one of the agencies and appealed up through. 
Um, and part of the reason I've always, you know, as I've looked at this over the years, you know, it's because it's always the security clearance matters are left to the unfettered discretion of the U.S. government. I mean, that's it. You don't get into go to federal court, and in and the folks like in your position, Perry, and things like that, you know, take that to heart, and they really, you know, and they really make that process um, meaningful. And I've seen that across the executive branch with people that have to um, render those decisions as well. You're listening to Fed Talk on the Federal News Network, 1500 AM. I'm here with Alan Schwakin from the Professional Services Council, Perry Russell Hunter, the director of DOA, and Chris Keevan from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. We'll continue our discussion about security clearances after this break and a word from our sponsor. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on the Federal News Network, 1500 AM. I am Tony Vernetti, and we are talking about security clearances in the federal government with our expert panel. Um, Chris, I wanted to give you an opportunity um, to introduce uh, your law firm and your practice, particularly how it applies to um, um, security clearances. Yeah, so as a lot of our listeners know, Shaw Bransford and Roth, we have uh, over 30 years been uh, represented a lot of uh, federal employees very involved in the federal employment community. Uh, our practice very involved, uh, very focused on federal personnel matters, which one part of that being the security clearance process. We represent uh, individuals and give them advice on filling out the SF-86, which, as Perry referenced, is the application for a security clearance. Anyone who has had to fill one of those out knows it can be a laborious process. It's a very detailed, very lengthy application. So we assist uh, individuals um, because there's often questions on what they need to disclose or what they don't have to disclose. So we advise them through that, help them through the the background investigation process. And then when necessary, if an individual's application for a security clearance is denied, we uh, represent individuals through that due process that Perry mentioned uh, to, to contest the government's uh, denial. Or similarly, employees, once they possess a clearance, they might get that clearance suspended or revoked. At that time, they would also be afforded some due process to, to challenge the government's decision. And, and we, of course, uh, uh, represent in, in, uh, individuals, both uh, federal employees and contractors through that process. And Chris is being a little bit modest there for, you know, 30 years. I think most people um, operating in this space, Shaw Bransford, you know, is the one of the premier law firms out there that represent um, federal employees and contractors out there. Um, so I just wanted to get that out since, since you, you wouldn't. And then I want to add, Perry wants to correct something that I said. <laughs> uh, well, not so much a, a correction kidding. as, as – uh, uh, Tony used the term due process, and, and, and Chris just did as well. And I want to hasten to point out this is not constitutional due process in, in the, the, right. the formal sense. We're talking about administrative due process. In fact, I like to describe it as the established administrative process that, that we have in place. Uh, I, I agree that it's robust and it's important that it be so, particularly because you used another term, unfettered discretion. Uh, with respect to the substance of a decision, you know, does somebody have, for example, a drug problem or drinking problem such that we can't grant them eligibility? That substantive decision, uh, the department or the government does have uh, uh, discretion, and it's under a Supreme Court case called Department of Navy versus Egan from 1988, um, and that so-called Egan deference um, gives great deference to the decisions of the government on uh, uh, the executive branch on on security clearance. Uh, uh, eligibility issues as for substance, but in terms of, of um, process, uh, we are we are somewhat fettered because we have to provide uh, the established administrative process that we've promised to. We have to right. follow our own rules, and that right. and that is something the federal courts will hold us accountable for. Right, right, and and my point was I you know just representing individuals, and Chris could 
you know, testify this too, is they, when they look at the procedures and they go, well, I'm just appealing it up through my same agency and things like that. And it's just trying to explain to them, you know, I've been doing this a long time. It's meaningful, you know, which is what, you know, Kate, you know, like we joked before we went on the air that I had this saying in the office that I put my trust and faith in the government to eventually get it right. And they usually do, you know, it, you know, in the end, you know, it doesn't mean it's the, it's the, the result my client wanted, <laughs> you know, throughout the years, but they usually they usually do get it right, or at least they're at least trying to get it right. Did you want to add something to that, Chris? Yeah, just to kind of piggyback off what Perry said regarding, you know, it's an administrative due process rather than a constitutional due process because individuals don't have a, a right to a security clearance. Um, right. it, it is a privilege. So it is a different, you know, legal distinction versus if the government were to try to take your, pro uh, your, your real property through eminent domain because you have a constitutional right to that property versus a uh, security clearance. So again, it's, it's a, maybe a slight legal distinction, but you know, the bottom line is you do, you are afforded due process. And as Tony said, it, it's gotta be fair and meaningful due process. This is the problem with four lawyers in a room. We're talking about the constitution and eminent domain. <laughs> so let me segue from that back to Alan and talk about the real world. You know, Alan, take us through kind of like the application process um, you know, through the eyes of the contractor, you know, who are filling things out, you know, where kind of we've, where we've started, where we come from and kind of like where you like to see it go. I appreciate that. Uh, so let me be clear. Primarily, we've been talking today about the national security uh, clearances. There's another two other pieces that are directly relevant and one similar. One is on suitability. It does not involve national security. And then other agencies have their own unique clearances like the Department of Energy. But for purposes of today's conversation, it's big enough to talk about the national security clearances. Uh, I'd like to talk about the process. The mnemonic that I've used is the four ones. One application, one investigation, one adjudication, and one clearance. Maybe that's a good way to think about that as we go through the program. Uh, first of all, an individual can't decide on their own that they'd like a clearance. Uh, an agency has to create the demand uh, for that. They, they're the ones that establish the requirement for a position that requires a clearance. And then there has to be a sponsor for that. And that's typically, in my case, a government contractor uh, who's willing to sponsor an individual for a clearance. And that individual engagement starts with filling out the application. Uh, we used to do paper a uh, long time. Uh, took a long time to move uh, into the 20th century. We're getting there slowly with, now with electronic forms. Um, but the SF-86, we still refer to that as the format, uh, using now electronic means so you can actually uh, start that process, and because there's a lot of information required, you can pause, you can come back to it later, uh, and not have to use uh, correcting type or correcting ribbon um, to get it right. Uh, we've also moved into uh, using electronic versions of fingerprint records instead of uh, getting that uh, smudge paper all over the place. Uh, we're making some progress, but it starts essentially with the employee, the individual, uh, prospective employee or current employee, uh, submitting that application for review. It goes directly into uh, back to the agency. The agency then requests uh, a background investigation. Uh, and that background investigation uh, for most of the agencies is done by the National Background Investigations Bureau. When they finish that work, uh, they'll submit that the results of their investigation to an adjudication. Um, that'll be uh, either the consolidated adjudication facility that Tony mentioned, that uh, that Perry mentioned for the Department of Defense or other uh, personal security review boards in the civilian agencies. They'll make a decision. And ideally, although we're not there yet, uh, there'll be a, a decision to grant a clearance. And that clearance uh, has two elements to it. One is a continuing need to know, and the other is what the CAF does, which is the eligibility for access to that information. Every one of those can take us down for a whole show. I'll stop there and come back to a separate conversation. But let me ask you, just sort of generally speaking, and it's more of a technology question, and, and, and Perry, you can jump in too. Um, I mean, just, you know, as government's got, you know, government used to lead in technology, you know, historically, right? 
And then it sort of shifted. Then the private sector has really outpaced, you know, where government, you know, is in technology. And it's, it's in my experience, it's been hard for the government to kind of break down the old way of doing things. I'm going to use a stupid example. Let's get off the mainframe and let's, you know, you know, go to PCs and stuff like that. You know, have you experienced that kind of, you know, stagnant, you know, problem as you point, you know, getting to the 21st century here? Well, no, not, because there have been efforts to move more aggressively uh, to take advantage of technology that's available. A lot of the background investigations is now pulling records electronically. A lot of the information uh, is flowing. Uh, access to uh, the commercial credit bureaus, all of that's done electronically. And there are still some work doing, going out and doing the, the shoe leather interviews with your neighbors and friends to to see what kind of person you are. Uh, but by and large, I think the government is moving more aggressively to take advantage of the technology available, both in the information collection side as well as uh, the adjudication. They used to mail uh, these investigative files around. Uh, now, fortunately, most of them go electronically, so you don't have lost paper uh, in them. The paper may not exist anymore, but at least it's not lost because paper has to be printed, collated, mailed, and f find out where it is in the mailroom. So we're making, there's good progress to be made, and this pace of technology change is so significant that I think we're going to rapidly put some of these other uh, barriers uh, behind us. Well, and I think putting it in, in one location is key. I mean, that, you know, that holds true for a lot of things you know post 9 11 you know that was important having one central location and i it's funny you mentioned about the the old ink fingerprinting stuff i remember i had to go to a, for one of my for something i had to get i had to go to a local police department and get my fingerprint done and i remember man i would have thought i i might have got a better treatment if i actually got arrested here than the way they were moving my fingers around on that on that form perry i wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the, the kind of the changes you know you know you've seen you know, from your perspective in the government to the, to the application so, process. So one of the one of the things, and I, I think Alan's absolutely right that there that while while government is slow to change, um, some of the reasons involve uh, that we have to follow uh, rules like the Privacy Act and the Paperwork Reduction Act, and and there are a lot of 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 procedures for changing a form. Um, with that said, uh, one of the successes in changing the SF eighty six or EQIP was the, uh, the change over the last decade to question 21, which is the mental health question. Uh, that's an example of where uh, we realized we had a problem, and, and, and this is also a, a great story about leadership because Secretary Gates, who was the defense secretary at the time of the, uh, both the, the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War, realized that we had men and women in uniform coming back from a combat environment who were uh, I'll just say uh, discouraged from seeking mental health treatment because they had to ask, answer question 21, which at the time asked for all treatment and counseling. Uh, that was far too broad a net for what we really needed. We needed to understand about mental health problems that correlated with risk. Uh, it took us a number of years to, to get everybody to agree to this, but when we finally did change question 21, it was for the better. There were some incremental public policy changes. Secretary Gates, of course, pressed for the exemption for uh, people coming back from a combat combat environment who didn't have to list that they had had mental health counseling because of that. Uh, there was a second public policy exemption that was added for the victims of sexual assault for obvious reasons. Uh, but finally, we, we rewrote the question, and it has a lot more words in it, but it is narrowed now to the, the six diagnoses that actually correlate with risk, where there's, there's some science behind that, and then some other specific mandated questions. There's a statutory mandate, for example, for uh, knowing that somebody has been uh, deemed mentally incompetent, or, or and, and we also obviously want to know about involuntary hospitalization. And Chris, you must get that question all the, all the time, you know, about what, what should I you know, there's these competing interests here. It's like, we want these folks to get help. You know, they're coming back with serious mental health disorders, you know, and, and I got it questions all the time is, you know, I, I'm, you know, I disclose it, I put it on the form. It's going to now create a job action for me, you know, which I'm going to have to deal with that potentially deal with that. That's going to hurt my, my recovery. I mean, you must get that question all the time. Oh, absolutely. There was, I think, well, until these recent changes, um, 
historically there was this perception among uh, contractors and federal employees with security clearances that it was a negative to get mental health treatment. And I, I think as society, as we've kind of uh, become more mainstream and more accepting of, of mental health treatment, uh, you know, I think the government has gotten this right in that we should be encouraging folks to get mental health treatment rather than them avoid treatment because just by virtue of seeing a, a mental health specialist that they would now are a security risk. So certainly to the government, um, you know, I think was it, was it, this was a a good change. And, and, you know, speaking of some of the other changes of kind of moving this all under, you know, the recent executive order to bring this under one, uh, one house, you know, and having one process, you know, cause I think historically wh where you were employed, which agency or which, uh, agency your, you know, your private sector employer was performing a contract or dictated who did your investigation, what process you got. And so oftentimes the initial question was, okay, where do you work? Cause we had to figure out which, who's doing your investigation and, and who, uh, you know, what process you were in. And, and I'm sure, uh, Alan might be able to share some some experience that his members and have had because it's also not only who's doing the investigation, but then you get investigated by OPM, but then a DOD entity won't recognize that if you change right. jobs, right. or an intelligence agency may not. So that might be something that that Alan could could share um, some experience that he's had from his membership. But we're going to have to stop here for our second break real quick. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion about security clearances and maybe get Alan to comment on that. But first, this word from our sponsor. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back to Fed Talk on the Federal News Network, 1500 AM. I am Tony Vernetti, and I'm here with Alan Schwachen from the Professional Services Council, Perry Russell Hunter, the director of DOA, and Chris Keevan from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. And we were talking about security clearances. Uh, before the break, Alan, we were talking about some of the, the recent changes, um, you know, and particularly some of the changes, you know, some of the adjudicated guidelines, question 21, Perry mentioned, um, and then, and then Chris was talking a little bit about some process changes. Um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to that from the perspective, you know, what you hear from your membership. I'd be happy to. And, uh, so on the process changes, two areas where I think significant progress has been made. Uh, one is that creation of the National Background Investigations Bureau uh, actually centralized uh, and streamlined the background investigations piece. Remember at the start, about the one application, the one investigation. While we're not there yet in all of government, uh, the National Background Investigations Bureau, today under the Office of Personnel Management after um, June 24th or of the next couple of months, we'll move over to DOD uh, for leadership, uh, now does background investigations on a for 109 agencies. That's a very good news story of getting us closer to that goal of uh, one investigation uh, for individuals. Now, there's still some outliers. They're big outliers uh, on this process. But uh, by and large, if you're getting a national security investigation, you're going to have the professionalism through the National Background Investigations Bureau. Uh, the backlog is still too high. Uh, backlog created for a couple of reasons uh, outside of uh, everybody's control. But uh, – that's coming down, coming down rapidly with new process changes. With the end of that, and um, what is the average time these days? Well, for a depending on the level of clearance that an individual wants, there are really two major levels of clearance. One for secret, most people get that secret level clearance, uh, and that that clearance can take uh, anywhere from 180 days 
uh, or longer. You know, depending on the nature of the individual, as uh, you open the show and as Chris talked about earlier, uh, someone who's got some foreign travel, someone who's got, uh, you know, a, a extensive uh, re- re- relatives outside or other issues, that background investigation could take longer. For the top secret, I'm sad to say it's taking almost a year, almost 300 days uh, on average uh, to get there. Now, we're tracking that. We, we The government is tracking those statistics. and uh, we engaged with Capitol Hill uh, a couple of years ago to enact some legislation to force some transparency uh, over those wait times and, and the um, the processing. Uh, but by and large, I, th- I think it's still taking too long. Uh, but the, the backlog is being reduced. It'll never get to zero. There's always going to be some amount of work. But why? So why is that between secret and top secret, you know, and anybody can jump in here. I've always, you know, been puzzled by that because the guidelines are still the same. Right. It's the same, you know, it, you know, security concerns you're looking at, you know, you know, why should there be a difference depending upon sort of, you know, the level clearance you're getting? I get if you're being read into a program, intelligence, you know, a queue and things like that, you know, or you've got to go through a polygraph. There's more there's more process. But I never quite understood the, the, the difference between, you know, why there is a longer wait time between a secret and T.S. So, so one thing that is important to remember is that the, uh, the, the structure of the investigative process is that we only investigate up to the, the level of intrusiveness that's warranted by the level of, 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 of trust. So, for example, um, there are multiple tiers now. Uh, obviously, the tier three or what used to be the, 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 uh, the secret level, NAC, lack and credit, uh, takes much less time, much less intrusive, less, uh, Alan used the good word, shoe leather, because uh, we're not going into neighborhoods or things like that. Uh, for the Tier 5, or what used to be the SSBI, uh, that requires a lot more uh, investigative effort, and, and it's it's more expensive. Uh, so w- there, w- there was a case, uh, Nelson versus NASA, in which uh, there were uh, uh, NASA Jet Propulsion Lab uh, scientists who didn't actually require access to classified information, but were objecting to filling out the SF-85, which is the least intrusive form there is. This is public trust position, right? And uh, because of the nature of their of their duties, and uh, they lost eight to nothing in uh, at the Supreme Court. Uh, the only reason there wasn't nine to nothing was because Elena Kagan had been Solicitor General at the time the decision was made to take it up. So uh, this is you know there there are. But there's always been that pressure from the workforce to not investigate me more than than I need to be investigated. Uh, this is fundamentally different from how due process is determined, where due process is determined by the degree to which it has an impact on employment. So uh, the due process is always going to be based on how how the decision will affect your job. If you can't go to work, then you're entitled to full due process. And that's that's really the way uh, the, 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 why you see a different approach at the investigative stage than you see at the ultimate um, adjudicative stage when you have independent administrative judges making a decision. Well, and I think just real quick, the real-life consequences of this backlog is because you have individuals who were hired to do these jobs, but they can't perform them. So either, A, for some government workers, they're assigned to some administrative duties um, where, you know, taxpayers aren't getting full benefit of what they're paying or in the form of, you know, contractors, you know, they're just sitting at home twiddling their thumbs waiting for their clearance so they can actually perform the jobs. So, again, this isn't, you know, this this isn't just some oh, bureaucratic malaise. There are real life economic consequences to this, both individuals and I'm sure, you know, Alan would say, you know, for his, you know, the corporations and uh, the industry that he represents. But do you, let me ask Alan and Chris, do you have, you know, there used to be sometimes, particularly if it's a secret level clearance needed, they would issue, they would, and they had a rush job, right? They need to get people in, they need a contract right away, and they would slap down those provisional clearances. You know, I guess they would run a NAC check, and that's an acronym for National Agency Check, you know, against criminal criminal background. Are you still seeing them utilizing, you know, that a lot? Yes, there, there's certainly interim clearances granted, although uh, given some of the recent uh, controversies, there may be fewer uh, granted in the in the future. Uh, but the interim clearance is a, is a it's a it's a short term uh, fix. Uh, it doesn't stop the the background investigation. It's uh, interim until that background investigation is completed, and then the 
based on the adjudication, they can withdraw that clearance. Uh, so it's not a permanent grant of a clearance. It, it truly is temporary. But it does allow employees to go to work, to be productive, uh, to fill those revenue-generating positions that the contractors have and provide the, the work both See, for but the that too, like Chris said, that can have a real-world consequence because you can bring people on with a quick interim clearance. They leave the jobs that they have or whatever, and they get on, and the clearance finally catches up to them, and they got something. And they end up not getting the clearance, end up losing their jobs. Perry, you want to comment? So, on so I'm, I am going to comment on that because, first of all, I, I agree with Alan. The interim clearance is critically important for industry to put people to work. So, uh, and and notwithstanding any of the the political controversy, which I will not speak to, uh, <laughs> the uh, the real thing to know about interims is that they are a good security risk because just because they've been in place for a number of months or or, or even a year. Uh, does not make the person any riskier. It's the discovery of additional information that might lead to a conclusion that the interim shouldn't have been granted. Mm. I will tell you that over a three-year period in which DSS issued uh, uh, 200,000 interim clearances, they only pulled back 151. And so that's something. So, so Tony, your your um, scenario of of there's a there's a risk in granting interims um, I, I would say is a false premise okay uh, so that w what I what I do uh, want to stress though is that when uh, when it is discovered that an interim clearance was improvidently granted because a national agency check or a local agency check reveals that there was something significant it's usually also because the person lied on the form and that's that's one of the things that uh, is uh, disqualifying and very hard to mitigate I mean, Chris, do you get a lot of people asking you, I'm looking to switch agencies, I, I, and they're worried about their clearance transferring over, you know, or having to do a new clearance? Uh, certainly. I mean, that question, you know, I think there is a lot of uncertainty uh, in the in the federal community. You know, again, just because of the, the various processes that, that are at play, people aren't sure, or even you know, they are given assurances through the application process. Oh, yeah, you're, you're good to go. You're good to go. Your clearances will, will be fine. But then, of course, when the papers get shuffled from one agency's Office of Personnel Security to another, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, something came up. We have a delay. And then it, it leads to, you know, some of the unfortunate situations that I talked about where the employee has been hired and then they're delegated, you know, they can only perform limited admin duties because they don't have access to the materials to perform what they were actually doing. Right. But um, I do, you know, some of the issues uh, kind of switching gears here is, you know, Perry had mentioned, you know, issues do come up during the application process. And a big issue, you know, that I see is, you know, when employees omit information, uh, Perry used the word uh, lie. I'm not going to go there. Right. <laughs> um, right. But, you know, that's certainly because, you know, it, employees, I, I think, too often try to split hairs and want to oh, avoid yeah. disclosing what they know is going to be, whether it's just embarrassing or they know it could pose a security risk. So they try to split hairs on the question posed in the 86. So, you know, my advice to, to clients is always, you know, you're better off disclosing as much and, you know, over disclose rather than under, because if the government thinks you're hiding information right. or misleading them, you will absolutely well, lose your clearance. Well, in, in the scenario that you and I are talking about, but not talking about, um, you know, which, which is sounded like my premise is, is them, they're leaving an eight, a problem. And they're going to a new agency, and they're not disclosing that problem yeah. on their on their SF eighty six. So it's going to catch up with them. Like I remember, I, I was practicing law when you know when TSA stood up. Every problem child client that I had, you know, at, at a law enforcement, she went and got jobs at TSA, and they all got their interim clearances. They all lost their job within six months and didn't want to call me up. And it's because, like you said, they 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 are not being truthful. On, on the form, you know, we, we joked about the little saying I had in the office. The other saying I have in the office <laughs> is at the end of the day, you tell the truth, yeah. right? It's easy to remember, and it also has the benefit of being the truth. <laughs> well, there are two elements of it, just to be clear. Certainly there are uh, issues under the employee's control, what they know, what they disclose. Um, that's that's that. There are also, though, another barrier to these uh, one clearance uh, holy grail that uh, we've been talking about is agency standards. I mean, some agencies just impose a different set of eligibility criteria uh, that may or may not have been uh, accomplished or in inspected in such great detail uh, in the adjudication. 
Uh, and then there are just some agencies that have no confidence in the background investigation and adjudication by other agencies. Uh, and so they're still, notwithstanding the uh, several agencies and the Director of National Intelligence pounding on the importance of, of validity of a clearance granted uh, that's gone all the way through the process, and particularly as we look forward to what the next round of these is likely to be, a phrase we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to in time, called Trusted Workforce 2.0. If there's no capability to for a clearance to move, then we're never going to solve the background investigations problem. We're never going to solve the adjudication issues. Uh, but th- that has nothing to do with the employee conduct. Right. That's always going to be an issue. So we're going to need to stop here for our final break. When we return, we'll wrap up today's discussion about security clearances. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Back to Fed Talk on the Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We are entering our last segment of the show, and I've been talking with Alan Schrocken from the Professional Services Council, Perry Russell Hunter, the director of DOA, and Chris Keevan from Shaw, Branson, and Roth, and we were talking um, about security clearances. We've been spending a lot of time talking about process <laughs> and a lot, of, a lot of sort of what I would call bureaucratic stuff, which is what I'd expect from four lawyers sometimes, but I want to I want to jump into kind of some of the the meat of the the adjudicative guidelines questions. I know Chris gets all the time. You know, I've got this in my background. I, you know, this is going on. You know, am I going to get security clearance? And I bet Alan's people, you know, get this question all the time from contractors or you know, can you help us screen who we're going to be putting forward? I don't want to waste anybody's time, you know, if they're not going to, if they're not going to um, get a clearance. Um, so Perry, if I can ask you just to kind of briefly, you know, summarize these things on calling, you know, adjudicative guidelines and let's focus. I know they were recently updated in 2017, effective last year, right? Or yeah, 17, yes. 16, so, effective yeah. in 17. Yeah, so so uh, Security uh, uh, Executive Agent Directive 4, or SEED 4, uh, has in it the new adjudicative guidelines. And those were signed by then DNI Clapper in December of, uh, of 2016, and they became effective for all clearance decisions on uh, June 8th of 2017. All right. Uh, the... the the big changes were to uh, guideline C, which is foreign preference, and uh, there were some incremental changes uh, where the both the, uh, uh, the the drug and alcohol guidelines and the, uh, the financial guidelines were updated um, in some important ways. Uh, but but those changes were incremental. The biggest change was that you no longer have to surrender, destroy, or invalidate your foreign passport. Uh, this catches up with. A, a rule that had been established for the intelligence community nine years earlier um, in ICPG or Intelligence Community uh, Policy Guidance uh, 704.2, which had said, just tell us you have a foreign passport. If we right. need to look at it, we'll look at it. Right. Uh, that's a much more practical way of approaching it because that way you don't have unfettered and unregulated foreign travel. The one requirement that is that is now explicit is you have to enter and leave the United States on your U.S. passport. Uh, th- that's important. So what about countries like, I'm going to use Iran for an example, that if you were born, if you're an Iranian-born U.S. citizen, they will not let you travel, at least used to not let you travel in on your U.S. passport. You had to use your Iranian passport. So, so that's part of the reason that the policy changed, because actually most countries have that rule. It's the, it's U.S. law. You have to enter and leave on the, the passport of your citizenship. And not surprisingly, most of the other countries in the world have the same rule. Right. Uh, this, this led to and, – and Chris talked about public perception. And this is something where – one of the reasons I come on shows like this is because – uh, we're often debunking uh, ideas like, for example, that somehow the mental health uh, question was going to lead to not getting a clearance. Uh, the uh, 
for a long time, the State Department published uh, on their website something that said, if you're going to Iran, you've got to use your Iran passport. Well, the problem was that national security policy for clearances said the opposite. Right. And so we had to constantly tell people, well, that notice wasn't for the cleared population. That was for everybody else. Right. Uh, so we finally harmonized the national policy for security clearances with uh, the passport laws of the world. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it makes a lot more sense. Uh, similarly, with uh, the, the financial guidelines, we've, we've increased the number of ways you can mitigate. That's important because, I, as um, uh, Alan said, clearance reform is ongoing. One of the things I am most proud about in federal service is that when I got involved in clearance reform first in 2007, it has spanned now three administrations with, uh, with sometimes incremental but always uh, forward-moving uh, clearance reform and continuous clearance reform uh, under uh, Executive Order 13467, Executive Order 13764, and now the Executive Order transferring the investigative function. All of this is is movement toward what Alan and industry quite correctly see as the goalposts. And right. it's uh, it's something that I'm... I'm I'm proud to be part of because it's it's not political at all. It is it is probably the, one of the most apolitical things we do in government. We're trying to keep the nation safe, and but we've got to do it in a way that respects civil liberties and individual rights. But yeah, and beyond all the process stuff we were talking about, it sounds like look, it, it, you know, at the end of the day, is it in the interest of the United States to give this person access to to clearance? And it seems like what's happening with the changes to the adjudicative guidelines is they are evolving. Yes, you know, as to what's going on in the world, like the 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 passport, you know you know, issue or, or, you know, the financial stuff. I mean, you talk about 2007, 2008 was when the housing crisis hit, you know, and there were a lot of people with, with, you know, a lot of financial, you know, troubles. And so the second mitigating condition for financial guideline was circumstances beyond the person's control and they acted responsibly under the circumstances. Mm -hmm. Um, Added to that in the most recent update to the guidelines is the idea of being the victim of identity theft. Um, I need not explain why that has suddenly become a more Mm -hmm. uh, important thing. And then also being a victim of predatory lending practices, which had happened to people before 2007 and 2008 and was exacerbated by uh, sometimes second-order effects of, of predatory lending um, being uh, offered to people who'd already been the victims of predatory lending. So we right. wanted to make sure we had more paths to mitigation because ultimately less than 1.5% of all people who apply for a clearance are actually denied or revoked. And so uh, we want to make it easier to mitigate at the earliest possible stage while right. still making a sound decision. And they're looking really at core, you know, financial irresponsibility and, and yes. you know, and things like that. Not necessarily an inability to pay, yeah. you know, or different things like that. Chris, I want to take a step back to the to the passport issue. I wonder, as, as we were talking about, you know, the countries, you know, going in, what countries said, what, you know, U.S. law is, what their host law um, I don't know if you've had this experience. Sometimes I would hear people say, I want to travel on, you know, this other passport because it's certain areas like Colombia, for example, where they're, quote, kidnapping Americans. And I don't want to be going in on a, on a U.S. passport. I mean, what do you tell clients who tell you that? Yeah, no, it, it puts, I, I guess, under the, um, well, specifically under the old rules uh, where you had to surrender your, your passport or even, you know, now try to travel only under your American passport, it does kind of, you know, people have to sometimes just make difficult choices and, you know, which do you value more? Do you want to have this security clearance? Like you don't have a right to job? security clearance. Right. right. <clears throat> do you want to have that uh. clearance and, and work this line of work or do you want to, you know, go travel and, and do these other things? So unfortunately, I mean, there, there are trade-offs. Uh, a, a security clearance is a great responsibility. And as, as Perry was just saying, this is all about, you know, national security. So, you know, with that, you know, as the saying goes, with with, with uh, great authority comes great responsibility. And so, you know, I think it's just on the individuals who are entrusted with a clearance to be make responsible choices. And you know, unfortunately, you always can't get what, get what you want. But is it, and Perry? Is that more? So I remember, I just memory serves that they were. I would hear folks say, "Look, when you're using that foreign passport, you are, you know, you are showing preference." So, so that's but that's real, not really the focus anymore. Well, that's why that's why the guideline had to change because, yeah. as Chris pointed out, the kind of choices that were being described were really unnecessary, uh, and and so now that uh, you can have and travel on your your foreign passport as long as you let us know about it um, and you follow U.S. passport law, 
uh, then then really the we're, we're containing the risk in an appropriate way uh, without going too far. By the way, I also want to commend Chris for working both a comic book and a Rolling Stones uh, reference into the same answer. <laughs> I missed both of those. <laughs> a Spider-Man hey, reference. Hey, I'm focused here. I'm keeping passing the ball around. Uh, <laughs> Alan, let me comment from from your perspective, from industry. If you got any early, you know. You know, to these cha- these recent changes, I know it's only been a, a year and a half or so, um, but they got to be welcome changes from your perspective. They're very welcome changes. It's going to sound like a government accountability office report. I mean, the changes are welcome. We're making significant progress, but more more needs to be done and more rapidly. That's why I'm excited about the idea of this Trusted Workforce 2.0 that I mentioned earlier. Uh, it, it moves from a clearance of a position uh, and responsibility to really looking at the clearance of a person and that so that clearance can travel with the person without regard to the position. Uh, there's no value, in my view, of a periodic reinvestigation based on the calendar. And so what Trusted Workforce says is we're going to give you that clearance and uh, transition from a clearance based on a calendar to clearances based on a trust with continuous evaluation and monitoring. Uh, and come back to my technology issues. I mean, the government's ability to take advantage of new technologies means that they continuous, can continuously look at credit reports or law enforcement records and do a much better job of looking at where that individual is at any point in time. Uh, I, I'm hopeful that this work, it's not nirvana, but it's a, clearly an important step but the, forward. Would that, would that do away with a five-year update? And we're just yes, constantly- it would. In fact, uh, the whole purpose is to get away from that review on the calendar, that periodic reinvest, re- reinvestigation whether it's five years or 10 years. And uh, does that put the onus on on the individual to update their their information every time something changes? Absolutely. So every I mean, time it, I have a foreign contact. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just that, that, not, not necessarily. Yeah. And, and that's, so there's also this thing called continuous evaluation, which is really what's going to be replacing the, the PR. And and so I thank you, Alan, for mentioning Trusted Workforce 2.0, because it is, again, something that I'm, I'm very proud to be associated with, because it is, it is truly going to make a difference. We're going to figure out how to do exactly what you said, focus on the individual um, and the, that trust role. That's going to ultimately help reciprocity as well. Uh, the idea that there is truly portability of trust uh, across the the federal environment, and there there have been lots of barriers to that. Uh, we're being careful about how we take those down, but 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 that's it, absolutely the goal. And, and it there, helps to prevent people from gaming the system, because I've heard from folks that, oh, I just had my five year. I'm eligible to retire in two. If I disclose this now, I might get fired. So I'm just not going to disclose it, which of course is contrary to the right, government's right. interest. Right. And it's a really bad idea. All right, just got my five year update. Here's what I'm going to go do. Yeah. Uh, spe- speaking of which, when you're filling out the form, even if marijuana is legal in the state in which you ha- have lived, um, it is still an illegal drug under the Uniform Controlled Substances Act. Uh, there was a DNI memo about this in 2014. Uh, so when you fill out the form, it's still an illegal it's, drug. It's the same. I get this question all the time, Chris. I'm sure you do too. Medical marijuana as well. Yes. And then yes. what a lot about of calls on marijuana? What about in the last owning? Few years. What about owning? marijuana stocks or anything like that. So so that's something that became a bit of a red herring in the news over the last few months because realistically, uh, we're not talking about someone who owns a mutual fund or who has okay. diversified investments. We're talking about somebody who mortgaged the house and bought you know, Joe's pot farm. All right. I, I had to get that question before I close, but that's all the time <laughs> we have for the show today. Alan, Perry, and Chris, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Thanks to all of you for listening. Just a reminder that Fed Talk is brought to you by the attorneys at Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a great weekend.